I'm up on wire. I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. My guest will be novelist Dylan Landis, whose new book that just came out is called Rainy Royal, and it's a very powerful novel. We're going to talk to her about it and about her incredible character, Rainy Royal, who is a I would say a very intelligent, mean girl. It starts off when she's 14 years old, and boy, does she know how to terrorize. We're going to talk a little bit about her. And Poetic License today, we have my very good friend, Carolyn Ayub. And Poem of the Week will be with Nancy Lechuga. She is going to read a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. So this is going to be an exciting show. This morning, I was looking at the Huffington Post, and uh, there was this article on um, words different words that we don't normally use. And I, I love to, to find obscure words and play around with them. So I, I clicked on it, and it really has some interesting words that I had no idea existed, and I wanted to share some of them with you because they're, well, if you're a writer, you care about words. And I suspect that some of these words are going to end up either in my poetry or in my fiction or whatever it is I do on a literary level. Let me share some with you. The word zugunru. Zagunru. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Zagunru. Uh, it means the restlessness of a caged bird in the migration season. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a wonderful word? So if you have a bird in a cage, and you probably should open the cage and let the bird go, but if you have a bird in the cage and there's a certain time of year where the bird starts getting restless, you know, like flapping its wings and hitting its beak on the cage, it's because it is experiencing Zagunru. On some fundamental level, that bird knows it's time to migrate. Isn't that a fantastic word? Here's another one. Lalo Chesia. Lalo Chesia. And this is a word I think a lot of us can relate to. It is um, the act of using swear words to relieve stress or pain. I think I've practiced Lalo Chesia many, many times. Another one, this is interesting. Gambrinus. Gambrinus means being full of beer. <laughs> That's a great word, isn't it? I have many gambrinous friends. I could tell you that right now. I wonder what that would be full of wine, because I drink a lot more wine than beer. I wonder if there's such a word that would reflect the same thing. But I, I do admit that I have uh, experienced gambrini. I wonder if you can say gambrini. Or I have uh, been uh, gambrinous uh, many times in my past. But it's good to know that. I'm going to use that next time I'm hanging out with my friends and that drinking beer. I'm going to say, you guys are so gambrinous. And uh, if you're like uh, some of my friends, you're going to pretend like you know what it means. You can say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, sometimes. And then change the subject really quick. Do you know what a snarge is? A snarge. Have you ever seen a snarge? A snarge is the remains of a bird that is hit by an airplane. (laughs) I, I'm going to try to use all these words in the conversation. Maybe when I talk to Dylan, I'm going to say, you know, your character really kind of reminds me of the snarge experience and see what she says. Oh, maybe not. Not on the list of the Huffington Post article is one of my favorite words. And I found a way to use this in a poem. The word is nagtavagant. Nagtavagant. Isn't that a fantastic word? Oh, you don't know what it means yet. I bet you do. Do you know what it means? It means one who wanders at night. And I tend to be a noctifagant at times, especially when I'm in old ancient cities like in Europe or Latin America. I'm very much a noctifagant. Maybe you are too. So stick around. We are going to talk to Dylan Landis about her new fantastic book, which makes me want to be gambrinous when I read it. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Dylan Landis is author of the new novel, Rainy Royal, from Soho Press. She also has a book called Normal People Don't Live Like This, which is a linked story collection. Her fiction has appeared in the O. Henry Prize Stories 2014 and in Bomb, Tin House, Best American Non-Required Reading, which, by the way, is a great book. And she has won a fellowship in fiction from the NEA. Dylan Landis, welcome to Words on a Wire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And congratulations on this book, Rainy Royal. It's, I just finished reading it, and it, it blew me away, quite frankly, right from the beginning. The, the very first scene when she's sitting in the library and, and she's uh, identifying with St. Catherine, I think it is? St. Catherine of Bologna. Yeah, yeah. Artist. If I were to describe it, and you may not like this description, but I mean it with the utmost, you know, as a compliment, as, as pathetic as my attempt at compliments might be, uh, it, it's almost like part Mean Girls, part White Oleanders, and part Virginia Woolf in the sense that Rainy Royal is incredibly intelligent and she thinks a lot. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great description. She's an amazing character, Rainy Royal. Tell us how she came about. I know she's not new to this book, but she actually showed up in a very powerful scene in an earlier book. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. I wrote a book of short stories called Normal People Don't Live Like This. And she was a bully in that book. That book was about a girl named Leah Levinson. And Rainy was the bully in that book. And I needed to find out why she was a bully. Mm. So I gave her her own story called Jazz, in which she's pinned to the ground in the dark in Central Park under her father's best friend. Who in this book is called Gordy, but who in the story is called Richard, I believe? That's correct. I changed his name. And she wants to escape, but she's also feeling all her powers. She's feeling, she can sense that Gordy is both in control and out of control, and she's kind of mesmerized by that fact. And then she disappears from the book. She's in the first two chapters of Normal People Don't Live Like This, and then she disappears from, from the book. And readers would ask me, why did she fall off the face of the book? <laughs> Will she get her own book? But I went on to a completely different project for the next four years that did not work out. Um, I was trying to write a novel about Typhoid Mary, of all things. Oh, wow. And had a grant to research her. And when that really proved not to be working for me, I wrote a Rainy Royal story and realized that's where I needed to be putting my heart and my attention and kept going in that direction. And Rainy um, ran away with her own book. I, I mentioned Mean Girls as a kind of description of the book, but it completely subverts the mean girl's uh, archetype in that Rainy, in, in fact, is the mean girl as opposed to usually it's the mean girl seen from a, a perspective of an innocent. They're the, uh, the abusers, and they never get very complex. But Rainey does some really horrible things, <laughs> and uh, she's really not a very nice uh, young woman. But yet at the same time, we see because of her victimization and because of her interior life and because of her identification with that saint and with, you know, and with her d development as an artist, that she's just so complex that we can't help but still feel for her and to still like her. And that's just an amazing thing that you pulled off. Did you find that difficult to do, to make us like her, or does it just come naturally? It came naturally. I was so sympathetic to her circumstances, which I have 
I have nothing in common with, but I, she's abandoned by her mother. She has this deeply narcissistic, cult-like father who's only concerned for his own pleasure. And she has no guidance in life. She has no real sense of family except what she creates with her own friendships, which are very intense. And she has a man living in the house, her father's best friend, Gordy, who sneaks into her room at night and strokes her hair, which which makes her feel both powerless and hugely empowered and causes her to act out at school. And these circumstances are what cause her to be the mean girl. And I felt very sympathetic toward her, even though she does some egregious things. Yeah, the environment that she's living in, her dad's a jazz magician in uh, New York City in the 1970s, and he has all these groupies that live in the house, in and out. If he discovers a musician, they might live there for a while. And so she really has no private space in herself. I love that there's one scene where he finds these two young women who are, uh, I think one plays the cello, I forget the exact instruments, but uh, he actually puts them in her room to sleep, and she feels that invasion. And it's like she has no space there. She has no space. She has no privacy. She describes her door as being porous. Um, The music flows through it. Gordy flows through it. Um, the cellist, the two twin cellists, um, flow through it. Um, in fact, they go through her clothes and borrow her earrings. And no, she has no privacy. She has no, which is analogous to her having no boundaries. Right. And she has nothing really that belongs to her. No, mm-hmm. she really doesn't, except her sense of herself. Yeah. Her grandmother has left her the, the townhouse in her will, but not outright. Her father gets to be the trustee until she's 25. Mm. And this upsets Rainey very, very much. And her grandmother says to her, but a girl must be her own trustee. And that really resonates with Rainey. Uh, We're talking to uh, Dylan Landis about her novel, Rainey Royal. This novel takes place in New York City in the 1970s. And it's such an important setting for this novel. What I, you know, I teach fiction writing at the university, and one of the things that I tell my students is that if you could take the setting out of your story and just put it somewhere else and it doesn't change the story, it's not very fundamental. And you cannot, this novel couldn't take place in Los Angeles, not even in the 1970s, and it couldn't take place in the 1980s or the 1990s. What is it about New York in the 1970s that's so important? New York in the 70s was very, well, the 70s by themselves were very adolescent. It was full of upheavals. And New York was a very permissive place. And it was full of neglect in a way where kids Mm -hmm. were concerned. Um, We had the Vietnam protests. We had schools without rules. We had rock and roll. And it really mattered how your genes fit. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And parents had no idea what was going on, at least in my experience. And New York was, New York is such a compressed and intense place. There was music, there was art. I'm not sure I was conscious of the art, but it was there. And you couldn't help knowing that it was there. I didn't know New York in the 1970s, but I know the image of New York in the 1970s. And it's certainly not like Manhattan today, which is almost like Epcot Manhattan in terms of yeah, everything's so expensive and it's overrun with tourists. And But back then there were dangerous neighborhoods. One of the images we had back in New York City in the 1970s is muggings 
these attacks. And, and so it, it's a completely different environment, yet at the same time, it is in many ways the cradle, the, you know, the basket of culture for the United States and really for much of the world. And so it almost in, in a sense, it reflects Rainey herself, that she's a little dangerous and she even does some you know, pretty horrible things with the gun at one point. It, it, it almost reflects her. Yes, it does. Um, there's some criminal activity. And yet, I, when I look back at it, I wonder how much of this was just belief about New York and the criminal activity, how much of this was just fear that was inculcated mm. in us, and how much of it was real. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, because that certainly is one of the ways police brutality and oppression was, uh, was encouraged in our cultures by making everybody afraid of the urban landscape. Absolutely. There's this one scene uh, where, um, again, the father is this this jazz musician with a cult following, and uh, they live in a brownstone, and he has all these uh, acolytes, you know, other young musicians who worship him and stay with him and do a lot of things for them, including sexual favors with the young women. But at one point, uh, a young a young man rapes Rainey. It's one of those points in the novel where you just you, you know you kind of feel you know like. Oh, like you want something to happen. You want, oh. And uh, yet when she goes to her father, he says, have you heard that boy play the cornet? Have you listened to him? Uh, that, that kind of pisses you off. And, but it really represents what her life is like in that house. It does. And it also represents how things were viewed in the 70s. I mean, today that would be called date rape. But there was no vocabulary for that at the time. This was a boy she knew. He lived in the house on the fifth floor in one of the servants' rooms. And by servants' rooms, I mean, you know, in the early 1900s, these tiny warren of rooms up on the top floor of townhouses were originally meant for servants. And so he knew her. When he knocked on her door at 3 in the morning and said he just wanted to talk about her father, she wasn't suspicious. And Howard, Howard's feeling was, an artist can't be a criminal. That's what he tells mm, yeah. me. And he believes it's just rough play. He doesn't believe her. And there's really nowhere for her to turn except to herself, which she does do. You know, I'm assuming that the pedophilia that, that takes place with Gordy and, uh, you know, quite frankly, even uh, the sexual tension between the adult men and and her uh, also didn't really have the well-defined name that it does today. And so it was kind of a, you know, how do you report it? Who's going to say anything? Absolutely. There was no vocabulary for this. There were no words for it. And I think there were no authorities to take it to. And again, she turns to herself. She gets a shim to put under her door so that it can't be opened from the outside. But it takes a while for her to work up the internal resources to be able to do this. One of the ways Rainey uh, Royal expresses herself is through her art. She starts to create these tapestries. And uh, a lot of this, the stuff that she uses, like buttons or, or you know, little, little objects of cloth, come from people who are dead or people who are, in one case, the victims of her, uh, her meanness. But it's almost like there's these objects of people who have normal lives, who have ordinary lives. And out of that, she kind of creates uh, her art. How did that come about? Well, that's fascinating, Daniel. I hadn't thought of it, that they have normal lives and she does not, but that's quite true. That's one of these things that bubbled up from my subconscious. I have never quite been able to say where it comes from or why. I just loved the idea that she created these tapestries from objects that belonged to the dead. It had a very romantic appeal to me. Mm-hmm. It made Rainey feel very like a very in- 
deeply intuitive person to me. It seemed like something she would be in touch with. And it seemed like a way that she would try to make a living. Not a very good living. I also couldn't help but think, okay, obviously Dylan's uh, agent must be looking to sell the movie rights to this because it would make a fantastic movie. Oh, well, thank you. I, your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no news yet? No, there's no news yet. Oh, wow. Because, you know, there, there's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It has been made into, like, so many different movies and cartoons and everything. And one of the things that I was reading about it is that the readers would, would look at that, would read that book, and they would say they, they want to see this character. They want to see them. And I kind of think your readers will feel that way about Rainy. They're going to want to see her. You know, we all have our, our own images of what she's like. But, yeah, I could really see this taking off as a movie. I hope that happens. Oh, I hope it happens, too. It would be lovely. I'm talking to Dylan Landis, whose new book, Rainy Royal, just came out, and it's just an awesome book, and it's doing very well. And I think this is going to resonate with readers. I think it's going to be a a big hit. And you have a crazy book tour coming up. You're in L.A., Washington, New York, New Orleans, Chicago. Do you like that part of the business? I do like that part of the business. And one reason it's so much fun is that these are all cities I've lived in. Oh, really? You lived in all the greatest cities in the U.S.? I've absolutely (laughs) lived in the greatest cities in the U.S., and um, where I'm going is to visit friends. Oh, nice. It just couldn't be more fun. You have pretty much communities everywhere you go. Yes. You know, when when my novel uh, came out, Simon & Schuster sent me on a uh, a book tour, and I was so naive. My image of the book tour was that I was going to walk into the stores, there was going to be a line of people, uh, you know, like on the movies, and uh, they're going to like wait for me to sign their books and kiss their babies and all that. The first one I walked into, there were two people, and they were sitting there not because they came to see me, but because there were chairs. <laughs> and I, I've subsequently learned that you know you really need to promote your own readings. And and I, I saw your webpage, and so clearly you're you're doing something. But are you very good at at getting the word out there and and letting people know that you're going to be around? I'm good at it where I have communities. I think it's incredibly hard where you don't. Right, absolutely. And I have read to rooms with two people in (laughs) it. And it's not something I I care to repeat. It's not something any writer cares to repeat. Although, I have to say, I was very grateful to those two people. Oh, absolutely. I've read to bookstore staff, and and I love bookstore staff, and I'm grateful to them. But it's great to show up in a city where you have friends and where the friends show up for you and... That's the best situation of all. One place I, I did my reading, I had to, uh, there was nobody, literally, and I had to go around and, and ask people, hey, I'm going to do reading, why don't you come by? And it was really embarrassing. It was, it was, you know, getting my first novel was the most, you know, wonderful thing that ever happened to me, but it was also the most depressing thing that, that I've ever experienced. I want to, we're going to close up pretty soon, but I want to ask you a little bit about your, your experience. Uh, in your bio, it says that you used to cover medicine for the New Orleans Time-Picayune and then an interior design for the Chicago Tribune, and that you wrote six books on decorating. That's amazing. Yes. Tell I had a t- science background in college and went to clerk for the New York Times. I was a, a journalist originally. Mm-hmm. And my, so my first full-time newspaper job as a reporter was as a medical writer for the New Orleans Times-Picayune, um, which is where I met my husband. Mm. And when I followed my husband to Chicago, the job they happened to have open for a reporter was in the home section. And they threw me into that beat, and I learned a lot about interior design and ended up as a full-time freelancer and design book author. 
after that job. Oh, I bet your your apartment is beautiful. I bet. <laughs> it is yellow and violet. Oh my God, that's awesome. No white walls. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I uh, wish you the best of luck with this fantastic novel. And um, and I do hope to someday see Rainy because uh, she's she's an incredible character. I think she's gonna she's gonna last. So congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. My name is Nancy Lechuga, and I am a local poet. Today I will be reading a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, and the title is A Song in the Front Yard. I've stayed in the front yard all my life. I want a peek at the back, where it's rough and untended and hungry weed grows. A girl gets sick of a rose. I want to go in the backyard now and maybe down the alley to where the charity children play. I want a good time today. They do some wonderful things. They have some wonderful fun. My mother sneers, but I say it's fine how they don't have to go in at quarter to nine. My mother, she tells me that Johnny May will grow up to be a bad woman, that Georgia will be taken to jail soon or late on account of last winter he sold our back gate. But I say it's fine, honest, I do. And I'd like to be a bad woman, too, and wear the brave stockings of night black lace and strut down the streets with paint on my face. That was A Song in the Front Yard by Gwendolyn Brooks. My name is Carolyn Musam Ayub. For my poetic license, I've written a creative nonfiction piece that goes out to my husband. And it is entitled, Garden Tomatoes. In the evening, Moses and I sit in lawn chairs, their purple and yellow webbing frayed and due for another repair. Our conversation rises and falls as he moves a sprinkler from the fig tree to the grape leaves, where red and green clusters of fruit glisten. I remember how Moses first sprayed the grapes for pests, using home remedies of biodegradable soap. But when successive generations of white flies rose up in defiance, he had to succumb to poisons. Moses pulls the hose to a dry patch, and the water from the sprinkler arches high, then low, until it writes itself into a steady stream. He asks me what I plan to write for this radio show, my topic for poetic license. And I begin saying, I am not quite sure. But I want to do something related to the notion of memory and immortality. Christopher Higgins a famed atheist and intellectual had said that for most of humankind, memory of another extends to three, maybe four generations. Moses walks over toward the earth boxes 
and lifts the arching branches of a bushy tomato plant as I explain. Being remembered, except for famous or noteworthy figures, is short-lived. Somehow Higgins' idea of being forgotten appeals to me. I watch Moses twist off a ripe but misshapen tomato and bring it to the table where I sit. Perhaps writing changes this equation, this forgettability, because writing can immortalize another human being, affirming that person's value and that of the writer's. My husband nods and says, It sounds good. I watch him resume his watering. Given my inclination toward introspection, I think of writing about him. With a soaring heart, I fantasize about using this poetic license, this five-minute flurry of fame, to sing of him. And you, among the many Internet listeners, would discover and rediscover his infinite worth. I pick up the bumpy tomato and trace my finger around its uneven ridges, knowing its homegrown juices surpass those from the supermarket. Inside, its pulp calls for the most careful chewing, its flavor enduring beyond the time spent in its consumption, where loving that tomato moves into memory. Loving someone, misshapen and imperfect, is a kind of perfection, I think. I laugh at the absurdity, that of Moses as a tomato, and hum the song, I say tomato, you say tomato, while Moses waters the jalapenos. I laugh too, thinking that the listener will come to believe Moses an expert gardener, which he is not, just a person supremely willing to put effort in things that he enjoys. His is an unpredictable garden, always one day away from fighting white flies to protecting the harvest from crafty birds to plucking grape leaves to make a family recipe. He nurtures in thoughtful, methodical ways, but drops curses around the yard if need be. My eyes scan the garden, and in every reach, Moses has planted a part of himself. In the corner, scaly foliage sprouts from the angular limbs of the cypress. He saved that 80-year-old tree, ravaged and neglected by the previous homeowner. Watered and pruned, the odd-looking tree sports fresh mint at its base. The tree and the mint, testimonies of his ties to family and heritage. What I love about Moses is his wildness. His garden is not manicured, edged, or even. The pruned branches of the peach and apricot trees jet out like a bad haircut, but Moses had sort of planned for that. Each spring, our family makes a project of stretching nets over the cropped limbs. Lily and I chatter, anticipating a delicious harvest, while Moses's commentary takes a more pragmatic approach, telling us, could we please pull the net more toward us and finish this up?
Moses sets a handful of jalapenos next to the tomato, and I look over our bounty. It will make a wonderful huevos a la mexicana for tomorrow, I say. He draws up a lawn chair near me and asks again, Now what are you planning to write about? For Words on a Wire, Carolyn Musameyu. I'd like to thank my guest, Dylan Landis, for joining us on Words on a Wire. And don't forget to pick up that novel, Rainy Royal. It is, it is amazing. It will blow you away. Thank you, Nancy Lechuga, for reading um, that poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. Nancy is a good friend, and she's also an incredible poet. And another good friend, Carolyn Ayub. Thank you, Carolyn, for sharing your poetic license. Don't forget to join us every week on Sunday at noon for Words on a Wire. And don't forget, the next book you read may save you from Zuganru. I'm up on the tie wire.